Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 158. And of course, it's a continuation of what we started in episode 157. Yes, it's a wander of sorts where I decided it was in our best interests to pause and inventory all of the major witnesses and players in this garrison saga. An inventory of the participants, including their roles in this part of the JFK story. In episode 157, we began with a discussion about the small coterie of investigators and assistant district attorneys in the DA's office, along with a small number of law enforcement callouts. Before you start listening again today and start wondering how I am doing this, I just want to say that you are going to experience a little bit of an overlap categorically, a little bit of overlap in the categories that I named in episode 157. For instance, Lieutenant Francis Frug who was an officer in the Louisiana State Police, and I left him off the inventory of law enforcement officers in the last episode, even though he is an important one related to this overall story. I did so because his involvement was effectively limited to the work that was being done around the Clinton, Louisiana witnesses, including Rose Cheremy, by the way, a dead witness. And I'll cover him briefly when we cover the Clinton witnesses in today's episode. And then you'll hear more about him in the dedicated episode on Rose Cheremy. Now, on the other side of the ledger, there is someone that I did leave out accidentally from episode 157, and that's John Voltz, who was another assistant DA in Garrison's office in New Orleans who had some connection to the case, although somewhat more peripheral in nature in comparison to some of the more involved assistant DAs in the office. No more to be said on him. Also, one more footnote. I've been pronouncing one of the key players' names wrong, and I'm going to correct it going forward. Assistant DA Andrew Mumu Schiambra, that's how I've been pronouncing it, is actually Andrew Mumu Shambra. I'm not going to go back at this point and change anything in prior episodes, but... I'll pronounce it correctly from this point going forward. You all have been patient with my numerous mispronunciations in the past, (laughs) so thank you for that. This one is not as blatant as, say, Oswald versus Oswald. Oh well, nobody is perfect in this passion play, and certainly not your current storyteller. Most of the participants in this part of the story also participated in the actual trial process and gave testimony, but not everybody. And Officer Francis Frug is a good example of that. He did not testify at the trial, but most of these characters did. And I think before we get started today, I want to provide a reconciliation of sorts of the number of testifying witnesses involved. I'm not sure if I've seen everyone's testimony but I have seen and read most. And now let me elaborate on that comment. The website JFK Online has a wonderful summation of the trial of Clay Shaw with a navigation page that shows 
virtually all of the individuals who testified during the trial with a link to a digitized page of their testimony. Outside of this source, I ran across one unofficial account in a documentary program done in the 1960s, which states that there were 72 witnesses who testified at the Clay Shaw trial itself. And that does not include witnesses that testified in the pretrial hearing or in the subsequent perjury hearing of Clay Shaw, and they did not appear in the trial itself. Certainly, some of the DAs testified at the federal perjury hearing. Alcock is a good example, but I don't know if there are any other non-officials who testified, as I've not gone back and done that reconciliation. I'm sure there are at least a few, but either way, 72 witnesses is a lot. As I said, I retrieved that number from a major network special on the trial, and it still doesn't include everyone. So you get my point and the reason for going through this exercise. By the way, the TV special was done, I believe, in the late 1960s by one of the three major networks, and the count should be credible, but it does not match other sources, off by a handful of witnesses. For instance, the JFK online resource lists, based on my manual count of what I saw there, includes 68 non-repeating witness entries. That is four short of the 72 witnesses cited in the TV special. And in the original witness transcript summation from the trial, I count only 58. (laughs) So what gives? Why the discrepancies? Well, I'm not sure. One of you may know. And if you do, drop me a line at podcastjfk at gmail.com. But in any event, going through 68 out of 72 witnesses is a lot and probably enough to get comfortable that I can tell the bulk of the story the right way. And when I say that to you, as you know, I like the testimony of witnesses under oath. And that is what we are talking about here. There was a lot of shuck and jive in New Orleans back in the day. It probably still is there in some way, shape, or form. And we really do need other sources to get underneath the covers and get the whole story. But starting with witness testimony taken under oath back in the day is the best place to anchor to. Unless you're a witness that likes to perjure yourself. And I do say there was some of that going on here. By the way, in my opinion, Clay Shaw perjured himself, if you haven't gotten that already from me. and as we have already somewhat covered. Had the perjury trial not been derailed by the appeal to a federal court for relief, and then the subsequent decision made in federal court by federal judge Herbert W. Christenberry to permanently stop Garrison from pursuing that charge in state court, well, on strictly the evidence at hand regarding whether Clay Shaw lied on the stand when he said he had never met David Ferry or Lee Harvey Oswald, it is likely to be a safe bet that Shaw would have been convicted in state court on the charge. Only the judge thought that the entire pursuit of the case against Shaw was so egregiously bad in the first place that Shaw was granted relief from further prosecution. And so then, hypothetically, we can only state that 
a conviction on perjury would probably have come about as a result of a combination of the Clinton witnesses along with the testimony of Mr. and Mrs. Tayden, who saw Shaw and Ferry together at the New Orleans airport. Don't worry, we'll get to that. And perhaps the testimony also of James Hardiman, the mailman who delivered mail forwarded from Shaw's home to a friend's residence in the name of Clay Bertrand. Regarding the alias, though, we don't even have to debate whether he gave out the name Clay Bertrand to the booking officer Aloysius Habegorst at the time of his own booking, or whether Shaw signed the guest book at the airport using the name Clay Bertrand. Those facts were irrelevant to the proving of perjury in this case, even though clearly they were another form of it. Now, just like everything else in the JFK assassination story, there is an alternative view on the perjury case. The Clinton witnesses were highly compelling during the trial. However, some folks believe that early witness testimony from Andrew Chambra's first Clinton and Jackson interviews gave a picture that was quite different from the well-articulated story presented in court. It's beyond the scope of this episode, but we will make a bit more time available in a later episode to look at those memos, which include interview notes with a bevy of Chambra interviewees from Clinton. Garrison critics say that the statements made by these Clinton witnesses changed around the time that Francis Frug and Anne Hundley Dishler, a second investigator, were taken off the Clinton matter and replaced with Andrew Chambra. No doubt the implication here is that the tactics used directly by the DA's assistant district attorneys and his investigators was something less than the up and up, and they point to the history of the Perry Russo matter. Again, we'll take a look at this alternative view in another episode. Okay, that was a bit of a wander as it relates to the perjury charges and a few other matters, so back to the witness breakdown. Of the 68 witnesses for which there is recorded testimony residing at JFK Online, 23 are classified as witnesses supporting the conspiratorial act of killing the president that occurred in Dallas. 27 were classified as specific witnesses from New Orleans related to that part of the conspiracy. Another 10 were classified as having testified related to the matters surrounding the arrest record of Clay Shaw. That is, as we know, matters that ultimately pertain to whether the use of the information about his personal answer to a question posed to him during the booking process. That is, the question of, did he have an alias? And his response, which, if you believe Habergors, is that he answered yes, and it was Clay Bertrand, whether that could be used in the trial. And after that, finally eight witnesses that were from Clinton, Louisiana, and were testifying in support of the fact that Oswald, Ferry, and Shaw were there. And in some cases, seen together in late August or early September 1963. Whew, that's a lot of characters. And these were just the ones that testified at the trial. You know, some very high-profile characters never testified. For instance, Gordon Novell is a good example, and Sergio Aracha-Smith, and there were more. But 
All of these will be included in another section of Storytell here as we complete the inventory of all the players in the Garrison investigation in the Clayshaw trial. As we said in episode 157, the Garrison case is such a point of convergence, a point of convergence that includes a real array of JFK actors. At its core, it has witnesses and testimony from the Clayshaw trial itself and many members of the district attorney's office and the investigative team in New Orleans. It has the defense team for Clay Shaw and a whole bevy of key members of the press who participated in some way, ranging from key local reporters such as Rosemary James all the way to national personalities that include the likes of Steve Allen and Johnny Carson. And because Garrison's intention was to prove a conspiracy in the murder itself, his case includes all sorts of witnesses that were there that day in Dealey Plaza. And also, he supplements that with experts to help figure out certain elements of the forensics in Dallas that day, and who were in some way important to proving the point that there was a conspiracy of individuals involved in Dallas as well. Honestly, it's a dizzying number of individuals, and I have a hard time keeping them all straight. Okay, all of that was a ramble to get to what we are going to cover today. Today, we are going to cover the Clinton witnesses and some other key witnesses that relate to whether Clay Shaw knew David Ferry and or Lee Harvey Oswald. During the trial, Shaw, in his own defense, made the decision to take the stand and deny that he had ever met or knew either of these gentlemen. So a major order of business for the prosecution was to initially establish that Shaw knew these men and they knew him and they knew each other because to know each other was the first step in developing a case proving that not only did they know each other but that they also conspired to kill the president. After this episode I think you will see that the prosecution did a very good job on part one of this process <laughs> that is establishing that these men knew each other and that Shaw was lying about it. But on part two of this process, establishing proof that these men then conspired or were part of a plot to kill the president, well, I don't want to spoil too much that's coming in subsequent episodes. I'll just say the evidence gets real shaky in a hurry on part two. For Garrison, the pursuit of a perjury charge after the trial against Shaw was, from a legal standpoint, just one more angle to convict Shaw on a charge that would provide for a sentence roughly equivalent to what he might have received for the conspiracy charge, if you can believe that. But it was also a way for the DA himself to save face, because the public credibility of Jim Garrison right after the trial was at a low point. If Garrison proved anything in the trial beyond a reasonable doubt, it was that Clay Shaw and David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald, at the very least, knew each other, and that Clay Shaw was lying about it. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 158 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.
One of the nice things about the way we're taking this journey on JFK, The Enduring Secret, is that we get to spend a little bit more time on things and see the nuance of things. Not always, but a good bit of the time. We're not a mile wide and an inch deep, as they say, but on the other hand, we're not tunneling to the center of the earth either. Before we discuss the Clinton witnesses, let's take a second to talk about Garrison's approach to this trial and why the witness groups are what they are. As I have said previously, the principal crime that Garrison could prosecute in his jurisdiction of New Orleans associated with the death of the president was conspiracy because the assassination itself did not occur in New Orleans. Per se, Garrison had no requirements to even discuss Dallas and attempt to prove that there was a conspiracy of shooters in the plaza that day. Now, on the other hand, he would likely have to connect the plotting that occurred in New Orleans to the shooting that occurred in Dallas. But still, that could have been accomplished through a single shooter in Dallas, and he still could have accomplished the prosecutorial objective of convincing a jury and convicting Clay Shaw of a conspiracy to plot the murder of the president. So why did he do that? Spend so much time on the events of Dealey Plaza in the effort to dispel the theory of a lone gunman. Dedicate so much time to an element of the prosecution that really had nothing to do with Clay Shaw. As I've said many times before, part of Jim Garrison's objective here was to expose the lie associated with the lone gunman theory, the lie that was contained in the Warren Commission report. Using a somewhat unrelated trial venue is clearly a dubious legal tactic. But from Garrison's perspective, and to that end, he decided to build a case that would include exposing Dealey Plaza as a complicated conspiratorial exercise in and of itself. That would have the effect of exposing to the entire nation the lie that was contained within the Warren Commission report at its core and the extent to which the government took either overt or inadvertent actions to ignore or cover up the shooter conspiracy. His hope was that the national attention would lead to great public support for his cause and relieve the pressure that most certainly was going to bear down on him in this highly charged political matter. And he also knew that bringing national attention and exposing things in this way might even catapult him to national prominence. And who knows, he might even end up becoming a U.S. senator. But I digress on that one. Regardless of that, proving a conspiracy in Dealey Plaza certainly would strengthen in the jury's mind that there was a conspiratorial plot to kill the president, making it then easier to believe that a wider conspiracy existed and that such conspiracy was actually constructed using multiple cells or at least on multiple levels, with one very important one, one very important cell, right there in New Orleans. The idea would be that there would be shooters at one level, people supporting those shooters at another level. David Ferry would be a good example of someone who might be involved in the getaway process, let's say. And at the highest of levels, there would be sponsors, unnamed but there, somewhere in the background. 
This is an oversimplified version of Garrison's thinking, but it's suitable for this illustration. In other words, Garrison would get a twofer related to the presentation of the witnesses in Dealey Plaza. It would bring to light so many key witnesses that were never heard as part of the Warren Commission, and it would also allow the Zapruder film to make its public debut in what most assuredly would be a shocking moment that would compel newscasters in the audience to scurry out of the courtroom and quickly describe the horrific event that they had just relived in a moving video, the likes of which had only been partially seen by the general public up to that moment in the form of still photographs published in Life magazine. And they would witness a shot that thrust the president back and to the left along with all sorts of other compelling testimony that shots were likely fired from elsewhere in the plaza. It would place the public and the jury squarely on his side regarding conspiracy in general. So the trial would encompass quite a bit of testimony related to Dealey Plaza and the proving of a conspiracy related to the shooting itself. More than one gunman or accomplice. The Zapruder film itself was shown some seven or eight times over the course of the trial, perhaps more. In and of itself, it could be argued that this was almost unrelated to the prosecution of Clay Shaw, but it was critical to the objectives of Jim Garrison. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Still, Garrison's logic was sound. Once the jury was tantalized by the idea that there was a conspiracy to shoot the president, and it manifested itself with multiple shooters in Dallas, and that these facts had been suppressed by our government. Well then, psychologically, it would be easier to introduce the idea of a conspiratorial element that existed right there in New Orleans. Garrison contended that Oswald never fired a shot at the president that day, and that he really was just a patsy. Nevertheless, Garrison still included Oswald posthumously in the conspiracy complaint, even though he himself was not indicted. Many people do not know that. But it actually was a critical element legally in prosecuting Clay Shaw. It was critical legally to link Shaw to the act that occurred in Dealey Plaza. And Oswald, as the patsy, well, In that, Garrison and his prosecutors found Oswald to be the most practical link between the conspiracy that was planned in New Orleans and the act that was perpetrated in Dealey Plaza. After all, the government had unequivocally already found Oswald completely responsible. So Garrison didn't really have to work to convince anyone that Oswald might be involved in some way. So, while Garrison may have seen Oswald as a patsy, technically, from a legal, prosecutorial standpoint, he was a critical link, either way, to the actual crime of murder. And the link between the murder itself and another conspiratorial act, the act of planning the murder, a critical link required in the prosecution of Clay Shaw. Look, I'm not a lawyer, but I sometimes play one on TV, but I'm sure all the lawyers listening to this podcast have a view of this legally. And if you have other thoughts or observations, 
or just disagree with that, feel free to write me with your opinion. Or should I say brief? (laughs) No pun intended. That's it. Write me at podcastjfk at gmail.com or leave your thoughts on our newly revised blog page. Okay, that was long-winded, but Garrison desperately needed to have legitimate witnesses stand up in court and testify that Oswald, Ferry, and Shaw knew each other. That was a critical underpinning to believing the wild tale from Perry Russo that these three men were all at a party one night and planned the assassination of President Kennedy. Something more homespun was desperately needed. And Garrison's closest arrow in the quiver were the witnesses in Clinton, Louisiana, the only instance on record linking all three of these men together at the same time, other than Perry Russo's testimony. Besides the Clinton witnesses, there was Mr. and Mrs. Tato, a couple that had two deaf children, one of which in 1964 was taking flying lessons at the age of 14 or 15 from David Ferry, a man that the young deaf boy adored. (laughs) Possibly a little creepy given what we know about David Ferry, for sure. And both husband and wife would testify in 1969 at the Clay Shaw trial that in 1964, they both saw Ferry and Shaw together at the New Orleans airport. The details of that in a moment. And then there was the mailman who clearly delivered mail forwarded from Shaw's apartment while he was in Europe for an extended period, forwarded that mail to one of his friends, one of Clay Shaw's friends. And who was that mail addressed to? Well, no other than one Clay Bertrand. All of this testimony was designed to introduce what appeared to be highly legitimate witnesses into the fold and convince the jury that there were ordinary citizens that were highly credible who could easily prove that this gang knew each other. Someone other than a witness that was apparently put under hypnosis and sodium pentothal, e.g. Perry Russo, and someone other than a heroin addict, e.g. Vernon Bundy. And at the end of the day, Even in retrospect, the House Select Committee on Assassinations believed that the Clinton witnesses were credible. But wait till you hear everything I have to say before we make any conclusions on any of this. This is an onion that you have to peel back, and it may take a couple of episodes to do it all. So just stick with me here. I know this was a teaser of an episode, and I kind of wandered so much that We actually didn't cover any of the witnesses here. So I guess that means you'll have to join me in episode 159, where we get right to it with all of the Clinton witnesses, and we begin to unpack that part of the story. Thank you for listening to episode 158 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 